Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, a good weekend to everybody out there. I hope everyone is staying healthy and enjoying the warmer weather, or at least I hope it's getting warmer wherever you are. I hope you've also enjoyed some of the interviews we've been able to have. It was a lot of fun for me to be able to talk to some of my friends and introduce them to you, and I hope that was helpful to you. Well, today we're going to talk about the Septuagint, the Septuagint, which is also abbreviated LXX. And the reason why we're going to do that is because I think there needs to be a understanding on the Christian level as a whole of what the contribution of the Septuagint is to our Bibles. And so my goal is just to provide a very basic brief introduction to the Septuagint, uh, give some of its background, some of the complications of Septuagintal studies. I had the privilege of taking a Septuagint class in seminary with Dr. Barrick, one of my heroes, and everybody who knows Dr. Barrick knows that he's super brilliant, and it was it was definitely one of the highlights of my seminary studies because I was just introduced to many of the complexities involved in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, and how that even impacts our understanding of the New Testament and things like that. So it was very shaping and forming for me in my understanding of Scripture. And on a lesser level, I think that everybody needs to understand just the fact that there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament and why that came about and how we should be thinking about that. So we're going to talk about that. So the first thing we need to talk about is the term, the Septuagint. And I'll just say right off the bat that there is a push in scholarship to say there is no such thing as, quote, the Septuagint, end quote. And the reason for that is because it's not like the ESV or the NSB or King James Version or what have you. There was never a committee that sat down and translated the entire Old Testament together. The same committee at the same time. That never existed. Like you have the ESV or NASB, you have an editorial committee, you have people working, but then it's all brought under one head. It's all done at the same time. Well, the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament happened over time. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But A lot of scholars will say there's no such thing as the Septuagint because there were so many different Greek translations because there wasn't just one either. There were other individuals who translated the Old Testament into Greek. And so we're compiling all of those and you can't define which one was the Septuagint because we're dealing with multiple Greek translations. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. However, as I'll talk about a little later, just by convention, we I think it's fine to refer to the Septuagint as the Greek translation, understanding that there are other translations and other translators who translated the Old Testament into Greek. And I think that we can, we can work with that. So I, I think it's okay to use the term Septuagint, even though scholarship as a whole, seems to be pushing back against that idea, I think we can still use it. So as a background issue, we need to understand why there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament to begin with. And of course, if you know your scriptures, you understand that 
there was a little event in 587, 586 BC called the exile. And so Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, uh, brings the people out into exile and disperses them among the nations, a sense a, a, a large cohort of Jews are found in Babylon, but there are Jews all over at that point. And so especially uh, as the time progresses in exile, post 587 BC, post uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, you have a, a disuse of Hebrew coming. Aramaic being the world language at that time where all of the commerce is done becomes the more popular uh, language for the Hebrews, for the, for the Hebrew speaking people, they begin to shift toward Aramaic. That's also what gave rise to the Targums, by the way. The Targums are a Jewish source of biblical interpretation that are formulated in Aramaic, but they're not a translation as much as they are a understanding of the text put down in the thoughts of who is putting that into Aramaic. And so they make some interpretive decisions that go beyond what a translator would do. Now, although that was common, you would have the Aramaic uh, prevalence in the time of the exile and immediately after the exile, you have a significant event coming up in the middle of the 4th century BC with Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great is named the Great because he did great things, specifically not ever losing and taking over the whole world. So Alexander the Great uh, brings with him, as he's conquering around the conquering the world, he brings with him the Greek language and culture. And so as part of the after effects of his great worldwide conquest, the entire world begins to speak Greek. And so now as the Jews are still reeling from, from their exile, even though they did return, uh, in, uh, they returned under the, uh, leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra. And even though they did return to the land, they still are heavily influenced by Aramaic. And they're still in the middle of these waging world conflicts. Greece, which at this point is the, is the head honcho. He, uh, through Alexander the Great's influence takes over all of these areas. And in so doing, uh, Greek becomes the everyday language of commerce during that time in Palestine and in the diaspora where other Jews still resided uh, in the exile. So that effect allowed there to be a sharp uh, need, if you want to say it that way, for a Greek translation of the Old Testament because a lot of the Jewish exiles and diaspora at this point were now reading uh, Greek and understanding Greek and Hebrew was falling into disuse. And so that prompted a need for a translation. And thus we have a translation of the Jewish scriptures into, into Greek. And that was even uh, used in synagogues and synagogue readings at times uh, for the general understanding of the people. So when we think about the Septuagint, uh, Septuagint uh, is is often abbreviated LXX, and LXX uh, is the Roman numeral L for 50, X for 10, so you have two Xs, so 70 is the idea. So why is it uh, called the 70? Why is it uh, referred to as such? Well, this uh, goes back to the legend, I think we could say, uh, the 
And it's pretty pretty much agreed that this is legendary, or some would even say mythical, in the sense that there's there are some discrepancies in in the story of Aristeus, and what I'm referring to here is the there's a letter written by an individual named Aristeus, and he's writing to his brother uh, Philocrates, and he's explaining how the Greek translation came about. And so a lot of scholars say, you know what, there's a lot of mythical elements here that are just un, unbelievable as far as how things happened, etc. And they're probably correct. The, this letter is definitely not inerrant. There's definitely not uh, inspired quality to it. We could say, we could say that for, for certain. However, there is probably an underlying semblance of truth which allows us to uh, see how the translation of the Septuagint comes about. And so basically, the whole premise of the letter of Aristeus is that he's recounting how he, how the uh, high priest of Israel, Eliezer at that time, uh, was petitioned by King Ptolemy of Egypt to send some envoys down to translate the Jewish law. And so there's a couple uh, sections I'll, I'll read for you here. Uh, I have the letter brought up on my computer here. And uh, basically, this is around line not, or verse 9, line 9 of, of the uh, letter. And it says this, Demetrius, the president of the king's library, received vast sums of money for the purpose of collecting together, as far as he possibly could, all the books in the world. By the way, I'm just going to stop there and say that the library at uh, Alexandria in Egypt was uh, purported to just be amazing. One of the one of the true wonders of the ancient world, and just all that was was found there is just really remarkable. Unfortunately, it was destroyed, and oh, you know, that was one of my teachers. Well, you guys heard from him last last time, Doctor Varner. He always used to say that on his wish list of of items that he wish would not have happened in history would be the destruction of the library at Alexandria, just because there would be so many treasures there. That would be such a blessing to us in, in doing our research, uh, into the ancient world. But I digress. So Demetrius was in charge of building up this library and by means of purchase and transcription, he carried it out to the best of his ability for the purpose of the king. And then it goes on to say on one occasion, uh, when I, at, when I was present, he was asked how many thousands of books are there in the library? He says more than 200,000 and I shall endeavor in the immediate future to gather the remainder also for the total of 500,000 may be reached. And then he goes on to talk about how the Jews have some items worth transcribing, talking about their law. And so this leads to the king wanting to get a translation of the Jewish uh, scriptures, of the Jewish law, into his library. And so scrolling down to, and this letter, by the way, the letter of Aristeus, is very uh, verbose. It has a very uh, intense description of everything. So I, I'm skipping multiple paragraphs to actually get to the uh, decree by the king. And so this is part of the... Uh, description, and it says in, in line 32 is where I'm at. If it please you, O king, a letter shall be written to the high priest in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, asking him to send six elders 
Out of every tribe, men who have lived the noblest life, who are most skilled in their law, that we may find out the points in which the majority of them are in agreement, and so having obtained an accurate translation, may place it in a conspicuous place in a matter worthy of the work itself and your purpose. And so there you have it. Uh, six elders from every tribe, six, uh, tw- six elders, 12 tribes, that's 72. And so 72 elders is, and in some traditions, it's uh, abbreviated to 70. And so that's how you have the uh, LXX abbreviation there. So that's, that's why we refer to it uh, with regard to LXX. Now, in the letter of Aristeus, only the Jewish law is translated, only the Pentateuch. And so it's, it's helpful to, uh, make a distinction. Some scholars do, uh, when they refer to the LXX or the Septuagint, they will refer to just the Pentateuch translation. And then they'll all, they'll use the abbreviation OG, standing for Old Greek, to refer to the other parts of scripture. Because as the letter of Aristeus, uh, explains, it's only the Pentateuch, which is translated at this point, only the Jewish law. Now, one of the things that's interesting in, in this history or this, this legend about the translation of the Septuagint is what Augustine says about it. So apparently by the time of Augustine, who, who lives right at the, uh, you know, he's born, I think, in the middle of the fourth century, lives through the translation of the Vulgate, uh, by Jerome. So he, uh, he's living right there between 350 and 400 AD. And in one of his works on Christian doctrine, he says this about translations. And, uh, I think it's helpful to read his quote here because it's just, it's really kind of interesting as he alludes to this, this legend of the translation. So he says, this is Augustine in On Church Doctrine. He says, now among translations themselves, the Itala is to be preferred to the others. The Itala is the pre-Vulgate Latin translation. So that's the old Latin. And Augustine says that's to be preferred to, to everything else. And his explanation is, for it keeps closer to the words without prejudice to clearness of expression. And to correct the Latin, we must use the Greek versions, among which the authority of the Septuagint is preeminent as far as the Old Testament is concerned. For it is reported through all the more learned churches that the 70 translators, there you have the 70 marked instead of 72, the 70 translators enjoyed so much of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their work of translation that among the number of men, there was but one voice. And if, as is reported, and as many not unworthy of confidence have asserted, they were separated during the work of translation, each man being in a cell by himself, and yet nothing was found in the manuscript of any of them that was not found in the same words and in the same order of words in all the rest." Who dares put anything in comparison with an authority like this, not to speak of preferring anything to it? And even if they conferred together, well, let me stop there first and say this. What he's saying is that they all went in separate uh, rooms and they all had the exact same translation. So they all individually translated it and they all came out and translated. Now in the letter of Aristeus, it says that they took 72 days to do the translation, but it doesn't say that they each did it 
individually or that they didn't have any kind of uh, interaction or anything like this. But what Augustine is saying is that they, they secluded themselves, they translated it, and when they came together, they all had translated it the exact same way. That's what he's saying. But then he says in his next line, even if they conferred together with the result that a unanimous agreement sprang out of the common labor and judgment of them all, even so, it would not be right or becoming of any one man, whatever his experience, to aspire to correct the unanimous opinion of many venerable and learned men. So what he's saying essentially is that uh, the Septuagint's inspired, you know, that that God has inspired uh, the Greek translators and that they had a unanimous opinion. And so we should trust how the final result is displayed. So that was Augustine's viewpoint on the Greek uh, Septuagint, on the Greek translation. He viewed the Greek Old Testament as being more authoritative than the Hebrew. In fact, he goes on to say in that same quote, wherefore, even if anything is found in the original Hebrew in a different form from that in which these men have expressed it, I think we must give way to the dispensation of providence which used these men to bring it about that books which the Jewish race were unwilling either from religious scruple or from jealousy to make known to other nations were with the assistance of the power of King Ptolemy made known, that's the Egyptian king, made known so long before to the nations which in the future were to believe in the Lord. And thus it is possible that they translated in in such a way as the Holy Spirit who worked in them and had given them all one voice thought most suitable for the Gentiles. So in other words, what Augustine is arguing there is that the Greek translation of the scriptures is where it disagrees with the Hebrew is an improvement or an inspired update on the Hebrew as is uh, providentially determined by God. So that's very interesting as far as the viewpoint of some of the early church fathers. And obviously Augustine's such a famous church father. It's, it's worth noting on that. And so the reason I mention that, that quote is, uh, we have the story of Aristeus on, on the, the origin of the Septuagint. We have it semi-confirmed by Augustine. There are other origin theories about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is obviously the most famous one, and, and I don't want to go into the other ones and just giving a brief introduction, but that's the that's the most common, and that's, that's how most people will view uh, the origin story of the Septuagint being related to some sort of decree by the king trying to get the copy of the law into the library and that much is is relatively believable. But when you think about how many scholars were involved with that and what was the process, did they lock themselves in the room? Did they all have the same individual translation? Well, some of that's kind of skeptical uh, when, when we think about uh, how that would play out. So the details behind it, maybe some of those are fudged a little bit, but at least the the core of the origin, the timing perhaps, which we're talking about uh, around 250 BC. Uh, 250 BC was when this letter is said to have taken place or uh, during the Egyptian king Ptolemy, uh, his reign. And there also seems to be reference uh, by Josephus in uh, Jewish antiquities uh, to support this idea. So when we think about this, I think that there's there's an element of truth to it as far as how the Septuagint ended up being a major source for the church 
uh, and for the Jewish community uh, through the beginning of 250 BC and then all the way through. So when we think about the LXX, the Septuagint, and and how it became a go-to for the Jewish community and eventually for the church, it makes sense because especially for the Jewish community, although there was there was a Hebrew revival of sorts uh, for the Jewish community during this time, part of that was in response to the birth of the church because when the when the church comes on the scene, they're viewed by many as an offshoot of Judaism. And ultimately, the main makeup of the church early on were converted Jews. And so it was a natural, it was a natural thing to view them as, as converted Jews, as an offshoot, a sect of Judaism, as they were often accused of being. And so what this led to was, was two things. On the one hand, it led to what was referred to as recensions of the Greek text. Uh, what a recension is, is basically it's a revision. It's basically either a retranslation or an edit of something. So there were multiple recensions of the Septuagint, not just because of the birth of the church, but as most scholars would believe, this was definitely a contributing factor. Now, there were other Greek translations that were being utilized or attempted to be done even in the midst uh, of the pre-church Jewish world, okay? That's just part of, you know, progress and, and part of producing elements. We understand that. But one of, so, so there were four, well, I mean, there are more recensions likely, but there are four major ones that are discussed uh, in scholarship. You have the Aquila uh, recension, the Symmachus, Theodosian, and then another recension called the Kaige recension. And the Kaige recension is so-called because Kaige is the way that you have the Hebrew translated uh, in certain parts and the, the Greek manuscript is marked by this Kaige uh, usage. And so they don't know what else to call it, I guess. So they call it the Kaige recension. So the most famous one, or at least the one that I want to point out at least, uh, would be the Aquila recension. And the reason that is is important for our consideration is because that is a very clear attempt by somebody who had converted to Judaism. He used to be a Christian, actually, uh, Aquila, and he converted to Judaism. And so his attempt was to create a Greek translation which was more faithful to the Hebrew and therefore a better polemical device against the Christians. That's uh, likely a part of his motivation, given his new uh, Judaistic faith. And so his his Greek translation is actually very helpful with regard to textual criticism, which we'll talk about in a second, because uh, it, it tries to correspond nicely to the Hebrew where possible with uh, trying to mark all of the different ideas that are communicated by the Hebrew into the Greek, even when it comes down to pronouns and when it comes down to conjunctions, things like that. So it is, there, there were multiple recensions here and, and part of that motivation was because the church started to use the Septuagint as their Bible and they would argue against the Jews and argue for the deity of Christ with the Septuagint. And so what this also prompted then is actually a return to Hebrew. I was uh, reading a, or I, I'm still reading, I'm almost done with a book called The Story of Hebrew by Lewis Gleinert and he is arguing 
uh, he, he's basically tracing the history of the Hebrew language. And he talks about this time about how the, the church and the, the Jewish culture, uh, the conflict basically pushed the Jews in one way and the Christians continued the other way, utilizing Greek and then moving to Latin eventually. But the Jewish community started in their religious sectors, really started to uh, push adamantly toward Hebrew again. And so they would teach their youngsters Hebrew and that was, uh, and then there was the Talmudic literature and all of that uh, became very, very popular. So there was, on the one hand, an attempt by the Jewish community to, to, uh, adjust the Septuagint a little, a little better in their view so that it would be easier to defend their faith against the Christians. That's part of the uh, prevailing theory. And then you also have, the Jewish community pushing back toward Hebrew saying, Hey, well, we need to get back to Hebrew. That's, that's really important. So that I think that there's uh helpful elements in all of that, of course. And then ultimately it's, it's funny uh, in part of the book that I was reading, uh, Glennert was talking about how the Christians ended up following the, the Jews eventually into, into Hebrew uh, when we're talking about the reformation and things like that, as part of an attempt to understand the, the Jews and be able to convert them essentially and, and utilize their own scriptures against them. There's, there's definitely, uh, an element of truth into that. But we're talking about the Septuagint here. So can't go, can't go on to all of that. So when we think about all of this, uh, I don't want to make it too complicated here. I, that's kind of introductory information. I, I basically just want to give you the, the idea that the Septuagint is a very, very deep, uh, and complex uh, element of study in biblical scholarship. But what does this mean to you, the Christian, or what would this mean to the average Christian who who isn't going to be translating passages from the Septuagint and comparing it with the Hebrew of the Old Testament? How, how should we think about this? What are the things that we need to know? Well, I think there's a couple main takeaways. The first, the first thing is, is that there's going to be textual disagreement, and that's going to contribute to what we call textual criticism. So textual criticism is basically the process by which we compare all the different evidence that we have by ancient manuscripts and determine what the original reading, what God inspired uh, for the prophets to write or Moses to write down. Uh, th- those are the things we're trying to d- discover. And the thing we need to know as Christians is sometimes you're going to have Greek manuscripts read one thing and Hebrew manuscripts read another. Now, oftentimes you will have Greek translate something consistently. And that's helpful when when authors do that, translators do that. But you will occasionally have very, very clear differences between the text that is communicated in most Hebrew manuscripts and the text that is communicated in most Greek manuscripts. Now, there could be differences in that too, and that that's considered uh, as evidence. Some of the more famous examples, perhaps you did or didn't know this, but in the Greek texts of 1 Samuel, uh, Goliath's height is six feet. Whereas in the Hebrew texts of scripture, Goliath's height is nine feet. And so you say, well, wait a second. That's, that's three feet different. That's, that's quite significant, right? That's the difference between a giant or somebody who's really tall and formidable. Okay. And that's one of the considerations. And that's why I can't remember. There are a few translations. I think maybe it's the Net Bible and maybe the Lexham English. Uh, like some English Bible that, that list Goliath's height as six feet, 
uh, instead of nine feet. And that's part of the reasoning behind that is that, hey, it would be really odd that if if Goliath was nine feet, that's, that's just really insane. And so, you know, nobody's nine feet and they can't, they can't fight that way. Well, I think there's a matter of, I think we can debate that point, but, but just from a textual perspective, you understand. Now to top it all off, there's also actually a few Hebrew manuscripts or at least one Hebrew manuscript in particular that also lists Goliath's height as six feet. So it's not just a Greek versus Hebrew, although it was until the discoveries of the Qumran scrolls. And that has brought a lot of evidence uh, to bear, which we're super thankful for. I'll do an episode on the Qumran scrolls sometime in the future because that's helpful to know as well. But the whole point I'm trying to get across is that sometimes you'll have Greek disagreement with Hebrew. And so what that means just by way of practical application to you is that when you're reading different arguments, commentators, uh, even pastors or teachers will sometimes make an argument for something and they'll say, well, the Septuagint says this or the Greek says this. That is a valid piece of evidence to consider, but it's not the entire story. That's why we need to be discerning, understanding, okay, this is important to consider the Greek evidence. It's important to consider the Hebrew evidence. All that should be considered for sure. It's, it's an element of discernment. And that's why sometimes you'll get the ESV reading one thing, the NASB reading another thing. You'll sometimes have disagreements between English translations because of the different textual evidence, among which the Greek is a part of that. Now, I should say this too, actually, on that point, the Greek is, and definitely was before Qumran, uh, one of the most valuable oldest witnesses we have to the Old Testament because most of the manuscripts that, or at least the texts that we have evidence of are dated to the BC era. So the letter of Aristeas, for example, ranks the uh, translation around 250 BC of the Pentateuch. Well, we're dealing with other books of the Bible that are translated sometime between then and 100 BC. Uh, those are usually the dates given to the formation of the Septuagint or the Greek translations in their original form. And so that's a very ancient testimony to scripture. That's pre-Christ. And before the, the finds at Qumran, the Hebrew manuscripts that we had were very, very late. The early or the, the best manuscripts that we had were dated to 900 and 1000 AD. And so the Septuagint is a very helpful uh, resource with regard to talking and demonstrating the the ancient uh, elements of the text, and so that that's helpful. Now the other thing, so that's all under like understanding textual criticism and why there's differences between how different translations might translate things, etc. Now the other thing to remember is that the New Testament authors will or characters will habitually refer to and quote from the Septuagint or from the Greek translations. So what that means is if you read a passage in the Old Testament and you say, okay, such and such says this, and then you go read the New Testament and you see, hey, this is a quote of such and such a verse, but sometimes it's quite significantly different. Uh, maybe the best example of that, uh, because it's on my mind, uh, having, having looked at this recently, is in Acts 15, you have James quoting Amos 9 verses 11 and 12. And if you compare those in the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, Amos 9 compared with Acts 15, there's quite significant differences there. 
And part of the reason is because the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Amos 9, is different than the Hebrew text of Amos 9. And so you have the New Testament characters quoting the Old Testament in the Greek form. So it's a little different than the Hebrew. And one of the things that we need to remember is that the Septuagint is not inspired in and of itself, contra Augustine. We, uh, I don't think we should agree with him. Now, some people do, but I think that it's a illogical position to hold that the Septuagint w- is inspired. But the thing we need to understand is that it's used in the process of inspiration. So even though the source itself is not inspired, it is used in God's inspiration process of scripture. And so the Septuagint, even though it's imperfect, even though it's a translation used by fallible men, it's very similar to how Paul quotes the Cretan prophet in Titus or how uh, Paul quotes the poets in Acts 17. You have examples of Paul quoting individuals who are pagans who are not Christians, who are not uh, uh, Jewish believers, and yet he quotes them authoritatively, uses them in their argu- in his argument as part of ins- ins- inspiration and inscripturation. And so that's okay. Even though the Septuagint is just a translation and it's fallible in places, the apostles are inspired by God to use those passages uh, in those ways. And so when we think about it, it's not, it's not saying something that's untrue. They are saying things that are true and they're using the Septuagint the same way we would quote from the NIV, the ESV, the King James version. We would trans, we would, we would quote something from our translation and we would use that to prove our point, even though God didn't inspire the Bible in the King James version or he didn't inspire the Bible in the ESV. Uh, translation form, right? You understand he translate or God inspired it in Greek in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so when we use English, we're not technically using the language God inspired, but we're using the meaning as it is communicated in a translation. So it's a bit of a muddy point, but I think it's worth thinking about being accurate because you'll run across these things and I think as Christians we ought to be thinking about some of these issues. And one of the things that that I think is helpful for us to be prepared for is those people who raise objections and say, well, what about this? This text disagrees with what we see in the Old Testament. And it's important to have an answer for that. It's important to to have an answer for yourself when you're reading through that to see the difference and to think through it. So I hope it's helpful to think through the Septuagint issues, to think through the Greek translation issues. It's It's a very complicated study. There's whole fields devoted to researching uh, the Greek translations of one book and the multiple recensions of those and, and investigating those. So it's, it's quite complicated, but I hope this, this introduction to some of these complications is helpful in just giving you a broader perspective of the, the beauty of the Greek translation of the Old Testament and even how the church obviously fell in love with it and utilized it every day for, for their people, for their comfort, for their encouragement, edification. And for us, it's, it's important to consider for evidence as we are considering different viewpoints, interpretations of different passages, the Septuagint can contribute to all of those areas. So hope it's helpful for you. And if not, you know, just uh, write me and tell me that you hate me. That's totally fine. Uh, but I love to hear from you guys. If you want to reach out, peter at petergaming.com is my email. You can always look at the website to see the blogs that I've written. 
That's petergaming.com. You can also visit the Shepherds Seminary website, which is found at shepherds.edu. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.